You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. But uh, anyway, I uh, went in and he kind of gave me some instructions. He basically told me what to do. And that was that at a certain point when the cashier was not looking, back in those days, you didn't have a lot of the security gizmos and gadgets that you have now. And and so he said, when she turns, just reach down and get a bag. So I love peanut M&Ms. And at that time, they were only a nickel a bag. But I didn't have a nickel, and I didn't want to spend a nickel. So anyway, when that cashier turned, I reached down, grabbed that bag of M&Ms, and put it into my pocket. When I did that, Tommy immediately affirmed it. He gave me a thumbs up, and in a little while later, we were sitting outside eating that bag of M&Ms. But I came out of a Christian home. I I had a mom and dad that taught me that you don't steal. And, and, And my conscience, even as I was in the act of stealing that bag of M&Ms, was already just pounding inside of me. It wasn't long after that. Tommy taught me a four-letter word. I said it twice at the table. The first time, my dad warned me. The second time, he met me in the bedroom, and he brought me to an understanding of what that word meant. And then he made this statement. He said, son, your days of playing with Tommy are over. Today, I'm preaching part two of For Conscience' Sake, And we're talking about the conscience. So look in your Bible, Romans chapter 9, because Paul uses that word. Now last week we talked about how often Paul uses that, this idea of conscience. Paul would say, I have a pure conscience. He would speak about that. In Romans chapter 9 verse 1, he said, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. You ever do that? You ever look at somebody and say, look, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. Now watch this. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it where? In the Holy Spirit. And then Paul goes on to speak about his love and his concern for the nation of Israel. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray, dear Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. And Lord, I know this is Mother's Day. And Lord, I've tried to kind of tweak this sermon a little bit, dear Lord, to speak to moms. But probably to moms and dads. I pray, dear Lord, for every mother in this room. I pray that it'll be an especially good day. I pray for those of us who've lost our moms, who, dear Lord, this day, as Sheila and I were talking about, if we had our moms sitting here, what would we say to her? And the first thing out of both of our mouths, we would say, Mom, I love you. Mom, I miss you. But Lord, may we make our moms proud if they're in heaven. May they look at our life and, and, and see the fruits of their labor and know that we're serving the Lord. So Lord, speak to us. I pray, dear Lord, that you cleanse me. Use me as a vessel. Lord, I thank you for our praise team, already the worship that we have experienced. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now, let me make a statement, and mom, uh, let me repeat it, but mom, it is critical that you understand the direction of this nation and the effect on the lives of your children 
and what you may need to do to counter it. In other words, there's a lot of things going on in our country today. And, and so before I, I'm kind of like that old Methodist preacher that said, before I, before I preach, I've got something I want to say. So let me make some statements. And Mama, I especially want you to listen very closely because today we are being, as parents and authority figures in raising children, we're being faced with a lot of issues. Kids are being faced with a lot of questions. And a lot of times these kids are coming, your children may be coming to you, and they're saying, you know, Mom, what is this particular issue? Or what's the right belief here or that or whatever? So let me make some statements. Number one, first of all, when it comes to any issue, Mom or Dad, that we face and our children face today in our society, number one, is there any component in this issue that could, should concern me as a follower of Christ or as a parent? And I wrote this down. Why? Because the average family today in our society is being bombarded with a multiplicity of issues. In other words, today's young family is facing all kinds of issues. And your first question on any issue is as a follower of Jesus Christ, is there something about this issue that affects me as a Christian? Number two, does the Bible, my Final authority, say that with me, final authority. Hold your Bibles up. Your Bible, you may be looking at it on the phone. I guess we'll let you hold that up as long as you're not Facebook or texting right now. But anyway, your Bible is your final authority. So secondly, you can put them down. Does the Bible, does my final authority, mom, speak to an issue? Now, for example, we've been looking at House Bill 1523, this uh, idea of transgenders going into a bathroom or, or something to that effect. And, but mom, as a Christian, in raising your children, there's a deeper issue, and maybe that's one that you need to think about. So if you were looking at, let's say you're watching the news with your child, House Bill 1523 comes on and you see all the you know, boycotting this and doing this, marches and parades, and your child's sitting there, maybe your 15-year-old is sitting there with you and you're watching that together, your question should be, and even to your child, is there a deeper issue here and one that affects us as Christians? Because that's critical. Thirdly, I believe the church, now listen to me closely, I believe the church today has been silenced on a lot of issues. Now, you may say, well, what do you mean by that? I believe that we're in a nation today, in a society today, where our society in some ways is not listening to the church any longer. In other words, Jesus warned that salt that is lost, its saltiness is cast out and trampled under the feet of men. We're living in a nation today, in a time in our society, that we have a multiplicity of issues with all kinds of twists and turns in it. I believe that for the most part, America today is not listening to the church. It is trampling us under the feet. And you may say, well, why is that the case? Because I believe that for many Christians, we have compromised our own moral, uh, we've experienced our own personal moral breakdown. In other words, in all honesty, a lot of the church today doesn't look much like the church, does it? And so the world and our society has lost respect 
for us as a believer or as followers of Christ, and thereby they tend not to listen to us today. And I wrote this down. Mom, if you failed to live a consistent walk with Christ, then you need to repent of that and repent before your children and begin right now to make some changes. Number four, we are losing ground in our society today and will continue to do so because we don't know our Bibles any longer. We face issues today, but in all honesty, we don't know how to take our Bibles and look at our Bibles and even to understand the theological ramifications of an issue and whether it's right or wrong. Now listen very closely. Your child, regardless of their age, if you're a young parent in this room, regardless of your child's age or regardless of your age, will eventually be faced with all kinds of issues. The question of homosexuality. The question of the ability to biologically change somebody's sexual and biological makeup. Transgender. The LGBT movement and that controversy. But beyond that, a host, a host of issues that are bombarding today's mom and dad in the raising of their children. Now last week, real quickly in a review. Number one, what is the conscience? You remember? The conscience is a moral sense of right and wrong that is inside of us with a compulsion to do what is right and guilt when we do what is wrong. Okay, everybody understand that? In other words, mom, listen closely. Your child, even before they become a Christian and convert to Christ, has a conscience and mom and dad, you're in the process of aiding the development of that conscience. Train up a child in the way they should go. And that idea there that we, you remember we talked about this, that's to hedge in, to give children boundaries and to, in essence, aim them in the right direction. Well, what is the right direction? That conscience is in the early stages of your child's life beginning to give them guidance even before they have the Holy Spirit. So, Mom, you're involved in that. Number two, we said this last week, everybody has a conscience. We may think, we look at somebody and we think, well, you know, they do, they do so many bad things or, man, that's such a horrible criminal record there. That person, it doesn't look like they have any conscience. Everybody has a conscience. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. We talked last week about C.S. Lewis when he speaks of mere Christianity and that great apologetic work in which he says that there is a moral compass, a sense of right and wrong in every child born into this world. And it's the result of a moral lawgiver that equips each one of us to understand and grasp what is right and what is wrong. Thirdly, is the conscience the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we get confused here. We think when we become a Christian that the Holy Spirit is now our conscience. That's not the case. Nor does the Holy Spirit come in and clean your life up by throwing, the whole, by throwing the conscience out. The Holy Spirit comes in, gives a steroid shot, a B12 shot to your conscience, and now your conscience, working alongside of the Holy Spirit, is working in unison. It, you're, the Holy Spirit empowers when your child comes to Christ. The Holy Spirit comes into their life, empowers their conscience, and makes it even more sensitive now to what is right and what is wrong because that's the indwelling presence 
of Jesus Christ. Prior to the Holy Spirit, your child, listen parent, your child's moral compass, their conscience in essence is their God. It's helping them. Number four, number four, we all have a conscience. Again, we all have a conscience. We all have a compulsion to do what is right. And we have guilt when we do what is wrong. Mom, listen. Dad, listen. It is not your responsibility to bail your child out, but to help them understand that whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Sheila, in teaching three-year-olds, would often say to a child who had made a poor choice, she would say, you made a poor choice and this is the consequences. The hardest thing for a parent to do is to let a child reap the consequences of their choices. Because we love them. But God uses the conscience even in training and raising your children up. Teaching them this inward sense of right and wrong. And when they do wrong, mom, don't automatically always bail them out because you get in the way of what God is trying to do. Sheila was the heart, I was the head in our home. No wonder the kids, I say, if they've got a positive trait, they'll always say, I got that from mom. Anything negative, I've got it from dad. I was the disciplinarian. I was the one when Sheila said, wait till your dad gets home. You know, but I didn't mind that. Because as a dad and with the authority of a father, and I think that's important, that children understand what is right and what is wrong. When mom did, when mom saw, when one of our kids disobeyed, mom simply said, the disciplinarian, the head will be home and you'll be answerable to him. And that's all right. We have to be careful sometimes that we don't bail our children out and we, we, allow, we help our child sear and silence their conscience. We don't want to do that. So the Bible, last week we said the Bible gives us clear warnings. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Paul said, he said, in the last days people will sear their conscience. Which means they'll desensitize their conscience. They'll harden their conscience through, how will they do it? With habitual, willful, continual disobedience. And, and it's not just, an, you know, misery doesn't love company. Sin loves company. So if, I get, if my child is friends with another child whose conscience has been seared, uh, they're living in disobedience, they're living in willful, defiant, rebellious disobedience, then I can get ready because that child sooner or later will affect my child. And parent, listen very closely. You need to be very careful who your children hang with because it is critical. So Paul said we can... We can sear the conscience. I wrote this down. Mom, that means Satan is trying to desensitize your child to sin and what is wrong and using anything Satan can to reinforce that. You have to understand, Mom, that when your child sits down to watch TV, the enemy is in that home and the enemy is basically trying to desensitize your child's conscience so that they no longer they cloud the right and wrong so your child no longer knows what is right and wrong and so we said that the conscience can be seared it's not just an individual act it's a community act uh, Adolf Hitler when he wrote the book Mein Kampf uh, uh, Nietzsche you know some of these 
philosophical voices that were speaking in the time of Nazism were basically used. And, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned the German church that it was becoming desensitized to what Adolf Hitler was trying to do. And that's a lot of ways I see what's happening in our world today. In fact, I wrote it down. You know, we talked last week about stealing cars. Used to, Ken and I, Ken, pastor, friend here, used to, Ken, when we were growing up, stealing cars was wrong. Now, today, we have movies about stealing cars, video games, how to steal cars, and we live in a city you dare not leave your car running because somebody will steal it. Well, you may say, well, what happened to us? I can tell you what happened to us. Our enemy effectively desensitized us to the idea of personal property and not taking somebody else's stuff. And the enemy is not satisfied with that because the enemy is trying not only to sear your conscience, the enemy is trying to sear the entire community's conscience, a nation's conscience. That's what happened to Germany. And you know why? Because the church was silent. And we said this, that what happens is our enemy will sear our conscience. Mom, in time, he'll silence the conscience. A seared conscience is a silenced, silent conscience. And then thirdly, and this is where we left off, the enemy, our enemy will strong... Listen, Mom, put your spiritual antennas up real high, Dad. Others can strong arm the conscience of those who are neither seared nor silent. Does that make sense? You understand? Let's, let me repeat it again. We can sear our conscience. We can silence our conscience. And if our conscience is not seared and it's not silenced, then get ready because the enemy will raise up somebody else or a friendship or a relationship or an authority figure or even an entire society to strong arm the conscience of your child so they'll bend so that somebody somewhere will say, we don't care how you've raised Caleb, and we don't care his conscience, and we don't care what he believes, and we don't care about the principles of Scripture. He will do what we say, or he will be removed from this university campus, or he will be removed from his job. And if Caleb's married and got two kids and he's trying to make ends meet, it may force him into a situation where he may be like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where he says, and I'm speaking here, Ken, about my grandson, one of my grandchildren, it may be this, that Caleb has to make the statement, I cannot disobey my conscience here. You'll have to do what you have to do. That's where we are. Now real quickly, from Romans, take a right, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, because this is what Paul's talking about here. Now, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul begins in verse 1. He said, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that all we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. Now stay with me here, parent. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one God. For even if there are so many God, or so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, verse 6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things come or came and for whom we live and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ through whom, whom all things came and through whom we believe or we live through whom we live. 
But, verse 7, but not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat it and no better if we do. Now watch Paul in verse 9. Mom, I'm getting ready to give you an argument. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall in sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Let me read to you what one writer said about this passage. He said meat was used by the Corinthians in their idol worship and afterwards sold for a reduced price. Why? Many in Corinth believed, listen to this, that evil spirits were everywhere and were seeking to invade human beings. And the quickest way to do this was by attaching themselves to the meat the people were eating. To counter this, the Corinthians would carry their meat to a pagan temple, sacrifice a portion of it, and thereby remove the demons from the meat. Afterwards, due to the volume of the meat, and because it was cleansed, it was placed in the market at great value. In other words, it was just steaks and ribeyes and hamburger. It just literally was so cheap you couldn't help but buy it. Though Paul had no problem with meat offered in idol worship ceremonies, it was a sin to cause someone else who might hold a contrary view to partake in it. Now stay with me here. The problem was that some people who had come out of that idolatry, out of that lifestyle, that that meat represented their past, and more so to eat that meat, they felt as if they were compromising their conscience. Paul said to those who had no problem with it and wanted to eat it, don't eat it because you're going to cause a problem in the conscience of somebody else. Now listen very closely, mom, stay with me. Here is a theological truth and a biblical principle, and I'll show you how it works. The Bible teaches followers of Jesus Christ that a freedom is to be set aside for the conscience of another. Let me repeat that. The Bible teaches a follower of Jesus Christ that a freedom is to be set aside for the conscience of another, for somebody else. Let me, let me read this, and you listen closely. Sometimes there is a need, even in parenting and even in pastoring and even in sharing our faith in our world today, sometimes there is a need for spiritual logic. Jesus was a master of it. Of it. He could stump his critic and often he would come in the back door of an argument and, and get somebody at a certain point and he had them at that moment. Does that make sense? If I were a parent raising young children today or teenagers, for example, if I were talking to someone of the LGBT movement, maybe a friend of my teenager. My niece grew up with a friend who was raised by two lesbians back years ago. I mean many years ago. 
And they had conversations about homosexuality and this whole thing of the LGBT movement way before it came to where it is now. But I wrote this down. If I were talking to someone of the LGBT movement or a friend of my teenager or my 15-year-old teenager who was asking a lot of questions, I might begin, first of all, by saying, do you think it is right to force a person to go against their conscience, especially if they believe it is a violation of God's Word as they understand it? In other words, parents who are raising teenagers, House Bill 1523, LGBT movement, the rioting, the boycotting, and all the news that is on for you, parent, to sit and idly watch TV and not engage your child in conversation is a mistake. And it is a tragic mistake. Suppose you're in a conversation with someone who's a member of the LGBT movement maybe a teenager, or maybe a friend of your teenager, just like my sister faced years ago, who, as you're talking to that individual, now this is very important. As you look at that person and you're trying, listen, you're trying, first of all, to identify if they're a follower of Jesus Christ. So I'm sitting there with my 15-year-old daughter who's brought a friend over. She's raised in a, in a, in a, lesbian, by a, lesbian, in a lesbian relationship. She's sitting there also with a strong belief as to the LGBT movement. She has convictions. So the first thing that I'm trying to do is not hound her, not jump on her, not attack her, not beat her over the head with my Bible. First of all, I just want to know if she's a Christian. Your 15-year-old sitting at the table is sitting there with her friend, and all of a sudden your friend looks at you and says, Yes, I am a Christian. Now, mom, listen to me closely. If you have an attitude, you will lose the opportunity to witness to this young lady and you will lose the opportunity to discuss and walk your child through an important issue. If your attitude right now is, wait a minute, Brother Jeff, homosexuality, that transgender stuff, that's a really big sin. Well, what you're saying is their sin is different, which means it is worse than my sin. You hear me? What you're saying is their sin is worse than my sin, and they should be ostracized and alienated, and thereby, because you have an attitude, you lose the opportunity to be a witness for Christ. And you put your child in a position to where they see an attitude and a disposition that they know is not Christ-like. I wrote this down. If we're talking about homosexuality, transgender, LGBT, it is a sin, not the sin. Some of you systematically watch pornography, you gossip, you abuse the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a place where you throw all kinds of junk food in it. You know gluttons will not enter the kingdom of heaven? You don't hear that preached much in America, do you? Some of you forsake the assembling of the gathering of other believers because you just come when it's convenient. Some lie. Some are dishonest in financial matters. You'll entertain, drive stolen cars and do whatever and rob God while you do it. Some of you in this room, you drink, you use dope, and some of you curse like a sailor when you're away from this church. And some on the website know exactly what I'm talking about. Some people, black and white, are so racist, they have such hate in their heart, it reeks, it 
It literally reeks from their pores when they're standing there. They forget that he that loveth not knoweth not God. What's the proper attitude of a parent who's probably going to be faced? If you are a parent of a preschool, you can almost determine that sooner or later your child may have an acquaintance, may have a friend, may have somebody who comes out of the LGBT movement and out of that lifestyle. What is the proper attitude in the inroad for both your 15-year-old son or daughter sitting there at the table, table or this friend who comes out of that lifestyle or is being raised by lesbians or someone from the gay community. First of all, Christ-likeness, Mom. Christ-likeness. Secondly, Christ-like love. Thirdly, Christ-like kindness. And fourth, an attempt to live your life within the dictates of the Scripture. You want to be a godly, holy woman that you are handling this friend or you're even talking to your child with the utmost kindness, gentleness, Christ-likeness, love. If you're ripping up the preacher, watching a chick flick with a little bit of nudity, if you're flirting with the next-door neighbor, you will lose the ability to speak truth into the life of your child. My kids, all four of them, will tell you one thing, and if they don't, they would not be telling you the truth, but I know they would. My kids are all grown, all four of them. They know, number one, my dad loves, has a love for the gay community, and will tell you they'll put their life on it. I've never mistreated or been disrespectful to somebody out of the LGBT movement. They know that I have a love for all men and women, no matter their color and no matter their sexual persuasion. Number one, they know I love the gay community. Number two, they know that I will go out of my way to be kind and Christ-like to somebody who's a part of that community. Number three, they know this. I know what the Bible has to say. My final authority about that issue, I understand the historical stance of the church, and I will not compromise my beliefs, my conscience, and what I know the Bible to teach, but I will still speak the truth in love. I've counseled many a person out of the gay community who knew exactly where I stood. They knew exactly where I stood on their lifestyle and would actually come sit down and say, Brother, they'd say, uh, Mr. Jeff, they'd call me, Mr. Kid, would you mind if I come drink a cup of coffee? I need to talk to you about a problem. And you know what I'd do? I'd just beeline toward the cross, but also trying to minister to them. Let me give a modern day example. When Sheila and I were missionaries in Zimbabwe, uh, we were sitting with a friends of ours. They were from New Zealand. He managed a hotel called the Monopatapa in Harare, Zimbabwe. We're sitting there eating supper one night, and David, this guy who manages one of the top hotels in the, on the entire continent of Africa, he looks at me and he says, hey, I got a question to ask you. Now, he and his wife are sitting there talking to Sheila and I. It's a nice restaurant, sitting there enjoying a meal. He's drinking, he's either drinking a beer or a glass of wine. He may have been drinking a beer. She's drinking a glass of wine. Sheila and I are sitting there with a glass of iced tea or Coke probably in Zimbabwe. He said, let me ask you something. He said, um, my friend who is the manager of the Victoria Falls Hotel, one of the top 100 hotels in the entire world, was approached by a missionary, Southern Baptist missionary, who asked if he could hold a Bible study in his restaurant. So he agreed to do it, but 
he's got a problem. And I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, every time this missionary comes in, he brings his Bible, he walks through the bar, he walks through the lobby area, and he just harasses and belittles and runs down everybody. And if I'm sitting there with a client or I'm sitting there with guests, he'll even come over there and speak to me about my drinking, about my alcohol, about whether I'm having a glass of wine or a beer. But he said, you have a missionary, Southern Baptist missionary, good friend, has he ever said anything to you? And David said, he's telling me the story. He said, I had to tell my friend, no, you've never said anything to me about me drinking. We're sitting here right now. He was drinking a beer and his wife's drinking a glass of wine. Sheila and I are drinking Cokes. He said, Why? He, said uh, he looked at me real inquisitive and he said, what's your belief about alcohol? And at that point, I smiled. I leaned across the table because, see, the only thing Sheila and I had ever tried to do in their life was to do this. We had tried to lead them to Christ. We had given them Bibles. Not only them, they're into their kids. We had taken them to church. All we were concerned about, first of all, was listen to this. Listen closely. You can't, this is my wife's favorite statement, you can't clean a fish until you catch it. I wasn't worried about his alcohol. I wasn't worried about what he was putting in his stomach. I was worried about what was in his heart. So I looked at him, I smiled. I talked to him about Christ many times. I'd take him to church. I'd given him a Bible. I leaned across and I said, okay, now you're asking me. I kind of smiled and I kind of laughed. And I said, now you're asking me what I believe about alcohol. And I, and I went on to say this. I said, I, well, I shared my understanding of what the Scripture teaches. And I said, there's controversy. You know, some say you can drink, but don't get drunk. You know, there's all kinds of controversy back and forth. If I eat meat and offends my brother, I don't do that. You know, I said, but my personal inclination is that if I drank, I would abuse it. I believe it would be a weakness. And more so, whether you agree or not, if I drink the amount of beer you're drinking sitting at this table, I would become tipsy and begin to act in an unbecoming way. I said, I can't handle my alcohol, and I'm not sure exactly how the Bible definitely could come down and say absolutely never a drop of alcohol in your life. I said, but I am here to tell you that I believe it affects my witness and my testimony before you. He looked at me, he smiled, he loves me, he's coming to see me. I haven't seen him since 1994, and he's coming to see me in September for the first time in 22 years. When we got up from that table, listen closely, he never drank a drop of alcohol in my presence again. You see, there, listen, there is a right way to approach the issues that our children are going to face and you can do it without compromising the Word of God. The LGBT movement. I would say according to Scripture that the Bible makes it very clear here that to cause someone to reject their conscience is possibly to set them toward rejecting the counsel of the Holy Spirit. So if I was sitting there and I have a 15-year-old young lady who's, who's, who's pro 
LGBT who's having an influence of my child, and my child's watching how I'm handling this situation, and I've talked to this child about Christ, and maybe I've given them a Bible, or maybe they look at me and they say, well, you know, I, yes, I'm a lesbian, but let me tell you, I am a follower of Christ. I believe the Bible, and I'm a Christian then I would look at them and smile and say, well, according to the authority of God's word, you are to literally, you are for my conscience sake, not force me to do something that would go against my conscience. Because that's what the Bible says. And you may say, well, you know, what about their conscience? When Paul is talking about this, he's talking about a freedom or a perceived freedom that one person feels like they have that they have to set aside. Uh, an area of liberality, um, something that might be considered to be a prohibition, they have to set that aside in order to be sensitive to your conscience or to my conscience, and that's what the Bible teaches. If someone in the LGBT movement claims to be a follower of Christ, they are held by the same authority of Scripture as I am. And it's sad that we, the church, are not dialoguing like I'm dialoguing right now. And you may say, well, wait a minute, what about the lifestyle? Let me tell you something. You listen closely and look this way. And on the website, we've got a lot of people, I believe, that listen. Listen closely to what I'm about to say. I've got my 15-year-old son who's sitting there with a friend of his who's being raised by two men, same-sex marriage. And my son is sitting there next to this guy. And my son is grappling to understand, Dad, what is the right belief? What should I believe here? What is right? And I've tried to teach him. He's watching now how I'm handling this other kid. I'm handling them with love, respect. I'm, I'm treating them with kindness, with the love of Christ. And I finally look at this individual because this individual, let's say this is a 15 kid, 15 year old kid, and he's a little bit, he's, he's sharp, and he looks at me and he says, Well, you know, I believe, and he starts talking about what he believes, and all of a sudden I say, Well, you know, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and because you said you're a follower of Christ, you have to be sensitive to the fact of my conscience. If my conscience is weak in an area that you feel liberality and freedom, then it's your responsi responsibility to submit and give in to my conscience. In other words, you should not force me to do something that my conscience tells me I can't do. And you may say, well, where are you going with this, Brother Jeff? Listen closely. Because the person who looks across that table, they've been treated kindly, they've seen the scripture, and they go, oh, you're right. The LGBT movement does not have the right to force the body of believers, a church, a Christian, to disobey their conscience because they want to push it or because they have the power or the government backing to do it. You're right. And you say, why are you going here, Brother Jeff? Because, Mom, it's at that point. You've got them to agree with you as a follower of Christ as to the authority of Scripture. And as you dig deeper into the authority of Scripture, sooner or later you're able to address lifestyle. And I can tell you testimonies of men and women who have come out of the LGBT movement. And God has gone on to give them a great life. You may say, but I'm compromising on the issue. I'm compromising on the gay lifestyle. No, number one, you're just coming in the back door. What did, the, what did Jesus tell you? Be shrewd as a serpent. You know what he said? Be smarter than the devil. 
You know what I want every morning when I get up? Last night, I didn't get home till after 10 o'clock, full day. I went over to a camp to talk to about 50, 60, 70 young people, college-age young people out in the middle of nowhere. God came down last night in that camp. I could, Mark Bowman was trying to get me to the car. I couldn't get to the car quick enough. People just stopping and some people with tears in their eyes saying, God's dealing with me. God's talking to me. Listen, I want my enemy. I pray to God that hell knows my name. I pray to God that every morning Satan goes, get up, man. That sucker's up again. You come in the back door, parent. Understand the issues. Does this issue pertain to me as a follower of Christ? And how, what does my final authority, the Word of God, have to say about this issue? You come in the back door. Number two, you begin to build a bridge to discuss farther. If someone in the LGBT claims to be a Christian and is willing to relinquish that what I have said is true about conscience, maybe I have an inroad to at least dialogue with them about lifestyle. Thirdly, I have modeled a Christ-like love. You remember... You remember the, in John chapter 8 when the woman was called in adultery and she was brought to Jesus. You remember that? You know, these Jesus is teaching in John chapter 8 verse 1 when all of a sudden the Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Sadducees or maybe a bunch of cohorts, these old thuggy kind of guys, they just, they come dragging this half-naked, maybe naked woman and they toss her at the feet of Jesus. And they asked this question. And it was according to the Mosaic law. We caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now, first of all, our question is, well, where's the guy? If you caught, where's the other guy? Yeah. But we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now, the law says that we are to stone her to death. But what do you say? You remember Jesus, what did he do? Anybody remember? It's the only, listen, it's the only time we know that Jesus ever wrote. We don't have nothing that Jesus wrote. Everybody wrote about him. So the only thing we know that he ever wrote was he wrote in sand. And, and you know, I, I, I believe that hell was doing everything it could to whip up a wind, Alan, to blow the sand. But he could command the wind and the waves. And he's writing in the sand. And, 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 and what John tells us, the beloved tells us, is that Jesus began to list from the oldest to the youngest all of the people that were standing around him. He knew all of them. He wrote their names and then he said, Ye without sin, you cast the first stone. And the Bible said that they began to leave from the oldest to the youngest and I wrote this down. I said, Jesus reminds her accusers that they were all guilty. You see, one of the problems of the church today in the LGBT movement, we're too busy holding signs that said, I hate fags and doing all this stupid stuff that we're doing and allowing people in positions of leadership to speak and nobody is countering these people with the love of Christ. I think sometimes we speak out of ignorance because we don't know the word of God. 
Number one, Jesus reminds her accusers that they were all guilty. Number two, but neither did Jesus reevaluate her sin. Jesus didn't reclassify. He didn't dismiss adultery. He maintained that her life was a result of the choices that she had made. And we forget that when he looked at the woman and he said, where are your accusers? This woman is half naked, bloodied up, dragged across the street, embarrassed before the mob. She looks and said, there are none, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. He sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He said, neither do I condemn thee. And that's where we drop it. We forget that he said to her one more statement. Do you want to finish it? Sin no more. You see, he told her, he said, abandon that lifestyle and follow me. But imagine if the adulterous woman had been in power. Maybe there had been a social shift. Maybe she had redefined adultery. Maybe her lifestyle now had some level of credibility. And imagine if she were able to say, this is the way it is. And this is right. Jesus would have said no. Society doesn't tell our conscience what to believe. God has instilled in the conscience of every one of us what is right and what is wrong and a compulsion to do what is right. And when we do what is wrong, we have guilt. But I've, what I've shared with you, parent, and parent, if you don't begin to go back and listen and think through these issues, there's no way you're going to be able to walk your children through the difficult days that are going to be faced in the next decade. As my wife said, as we were talking this morning about this, she smiled and she said, love never fails. And I'll say it again, I've never mistreated Never been unkind, never been unchristlike to anyone in the gay community. Never, never. And many in the gay community knew what I believed, knew where I stood, knew how I understood the scripture as to their lifestyle, and knew that, and still knew that I loved them and would come to me for advice and counsel, and I would pray they would always feel the freedom to do that. And you say, well, Brother Jeff, what about their lifestyle? I'd get around to Speak the truth in love. Let's stand and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you, and Lord, this, um, I, I doubt in America right now, there's too many Mother's Day sermons that were about a subject such as this. But Lord, I, I pray that for every mom, especially every dad, that, Lord, they would learn how to speak to the issues that we face today with a Christ-like love and kindness and gentleness. As Paul said in Galatians 6.1, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. I pray, dear Lord, that for every parent in this room, the years ahead in raising children will be very difficult. 
These are days probably much like Amram and Jochebed faced as they were giving birth to Moses and trying to raise him within a very, very sad time in the nation of Israel. But I don't know. I don't know if little Benjamin, I don't know if Titus, I don't know if August, I don't know if Junior, I don't know, dear Lord, if Abel, I don't know if even some of these young babies that are coming into the world may be the tool in your hand to bring a great spiritual awakening and a revival. I don't know, dear Lord, last night as I looked at tear-filled eyes and people of all ages, college and high school and junior high, even workers, dear Lord, following me out to the vehicle, still pounding away with questions. I believe that in our country today, in our society today, that people in all walks of life, even within the LGBT movement, simply want to be heard, to be understood, and to know that though we may disagree with them on a lifestyle, we are commanded to love them. They are commanded to love us. It's not an us and them. I don't even like that ter terminology. I pray, dear Lord, you give parents wisdom beyond their years to know how to speak to the issues that they face. And I pray, dear Lord, that you just you and give us everything that we need to be Christ-like because love never fails. Lord, I pray if there's one here that doesn't know you, that they might today give their heart, give their life to you, and from this moment on, repent of their sin. Say, Jesus, come into my heart, forgive me, and be the Lord of my life. And right now, change me, Lord, from the inside out. As Sheila said, you haven't told us to clean fish. You just simply said, let's go out and catch them. I'll clean them. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.